Exploring Challenges to and from Self-Study Methodology. Novice and Expert Perspectives from a French Scholar, Cécile Bullock and Sean Michael Bullock. Abstract. In this chapter, we will use our perspectives as insiders and outsiders to each other's research communities as a device for exploring challenges to self-study from sociolinguistic French scholarship and challenges from self-study to the same scholarship. Cécile is relatively new to self-study, but an experienced researcher in sociolinguistics. Sean is an experienced self-study researcher who is new to sociolinguistic framings originating in the Francophone Academy. In this chapter, we consider our changing roles as novice and expert to analyze and interpret the ways in which the two research traditions might learn from each other and, in particular, the vulnerabilities and challenges Cecile faced engaging in collaborative self-study as an experienced researcher from other reflexive research traditions. The chapter is thus an analysis of an ongoing collaborative self-study and critical friendship that provides a critique of self-study methodology. We conclude by highlighting the role of language and power inherent in any consideration of self-study methodology and methods. Introduction. In this chapter, we will use our perspectives as insiders and outsiders to each other's research communities as a device for exploring challenges to self-study from sociolinguistic French scholarship and challenges from self-study to the same scholarship. Cécile is an associate professor of French education at Simon Fraser University and was completely educated within a set of sociolinguistic frameworks in France before moving to Canada 15 years ago. Broadly speaking, her research has explored the teaching and learning of French as a second language, FSL, in minority language contexts in both France and Canada. Cécile has long used a reflexive stance in her work, but more recently, she has turned to self-study as a way to understand further her identities as a researcher and teacher-educator. Sean is a reader in the History and Philosophy of Science, Technology, and Education at the University of Cambridge. He has worked with self-study methodology since beginning doctoral studies with Tom Russell 15 years ago and has been particularly interested in the transition from teacher to teacher-educator and the lenses that the history and philosophy of science and technology bring to understanding self-study methodology. Prior to his current position, he was an associate professor of science education at Simon Fraser University. We began a critical friendship a number of years ago, and one recurring theme in our work together has been to realize that we move freely between the roles of novice and expert throughout our conversations. For example, Cecile is new to self-study methodology, but she has a robust understanding of how to situate herself within ethnographic and sociological research, particularly within questions pertaining to language acquisition. Sean is well-published in self-study methodology, but until conversations with Cecile, he has lacked a theoretical framework with which to consider questions in language education, despite having explored language education in a number of ways earlier in his career. A few personal details are relevant in the interest of being transparent to the reader. We are recently married, and thus we draw attention to the fact that references citing Sabatier are referring to Cécile's work before 2019. We have written academically in both French and English, and we have both taught in both languages, although Cécile has taught more in French and Sean has taught more in English. Our language of personal communication is French. Setting the Scene A Newcomer to Self-Study Methodology Cécile in June 2017, I began my journey into self-study methodology to understand my own practice as a teacher of French as a second language, FSL, and teacher educator. I was educated and trained as a FSL teacher in France. My educational background is in sociolinguistics and multilingual language acquisition. I use la didactique du plurilinguisme, a sociological perspective on language teaching and learning to describe, interpret, and analyze all processes underlying language learning, teaching, and acquisition. I moved into the field of self-study through my involvement in Sean's research program. 
ostensibly designed under the broad umbrella of critical friendship method that help him to describe, interpret, and analyze his pedagogy of teacher education using self-study methodology alongside colleagues in teacher education. Early on, I noted the following, quote, I understand self-study as a scholarship that helps teachers and teacher educators to make sense of their practice and their assumptions about teaching and learning, and to allow them to build stronger professional identities. I also understand it as a reflective stance about teaching and learning, supported by theory and an analysis of professional practice, end quote. My journey to and through self-study has neither been straightforward nor easy to understand. As someone who was formed in the French Academy, the implicit assumptions created via the largely Anglophone scholarship in self-study have been difficult to navigate, although the results have been personally and professionally rewarding. In a chapter explicitly devoted to the history of self-study in the first edition of this handbook, Lauren was quick to situate the field along a long intellectual genealogy that, in part, reflected broader movements in the academy. Indeed, one might sum up the genesis of self-study methodology in the following way. Teacher educators became interested in making explicit the very reflective practices they expected teacher candidates to engage with. Something that is understandably absent in Lochran's history of self-study is a discussion of related concurrent interests in reflexive practices within French academic circles and traditions of thought. Of course, this is unsurprising given that the vast majority of published self-study work, particularly in the early stages of the methodology in the 1990s, was constructed and enacted in English within scholarly traditions most familiar to the American, Australian, British, and Canadian academies. When approached to consider the broad theme of challenges to and from self-study methodology, my immediate reaction was, as a relative newcomer, hesitation. I soon realized, though, that not only were my feelings of uncertainty around understanding self-study and its expectations documented by members of the community, but also I was perhaps positioned to ask questions about the methodology that others are not. Although new to this particular methodology, I am neither new to the academy nor to the ideas of reflexive practice, autoethnography, and practitioner-based forms of research. Additionally, as a plurilingual scholar, I recognize that how one approaches intellectual problems and discourses is, in part, a function of the languages one uses to communicate. Indeed, a key feature of my early work in this field has been the relevance of both language and initial academic formation in how one thinks about self-study methodology and practice. The purpose of this chapter is to offer a provocation to the field of self-study, grounded in a continuing self-study of my own transition to the field. In doing so, I hope to add to the work begun by Bullock and Madigan Piercy that explore challenges from inside the self-study literature and outside the self-study literature. Quote, a review of literature from inside and outside the field is generative for thinking about the affordances and critiques self-study would do well to address as it moves forward as a methodology, a set of communities, and a vital contributor to research in teacher education. At the outset of this project, we expected to read very different sets of critiques from inside and outside the methodology of study. Not only were we incorrect in our hypothesis, but it seems that there was a remarkable coherence in the field regardless of literature. It is clear from the literature, for example, that self-study methodology offers a valuable way to develop professional voice as a teacher educator in multiple contexts, within multiple kinds of pressures. The methodology provides a conduit for a variety of kinds of collaborative work and a way of engaging in the professional development of teacher educators. It is also clear from the literature that self-study is haunted by concerns of relevance within the broader discussion in teacher education, a claim that we find interesting given the number of people writing about self-study outside the internal academic work. End quote. They further posited that part of the confusion around critiques of self-study perhaps lay in nomenclature across traditions. It is this confusion, compounded by both language and academic cultures, that is my jumping-off point for this chapter. 
Thus, I take a slightly different frame to think about challenges to and from the field. My provocation is grounded in my status as an insider-outsider to the field. I am an insider in the sense that I have attended a self-study, CASEL conference, and American Educational Research Association, AARA sessions, as well as published in studying teacher education. I am an outsider in the sense that I have spent the bulk of my 20-year career in research working with ideas from the French Academy, and mostly writing in French. My challenges to self-study come from a consideration of theoretical frameworks with which I am most familiar. The challenges I receive from self-study refer to the ways I have been challenged, indeed disrupted, as a result of engaging in this work. Throughout the chapter, I sometimes write in first person, a challenging task for any French scholar, I might add, when referring to my own experiences in both text and excerpts from the research journal I have kept for three years. The rest of the chapter, with the exception of the following section, is co-constructed by Sean and me and is written in more of a traditional style to analyze both excerpts of my self-study data and to introduce relevant literature. We hope that moving between first-person and third-person accounts in this way helps to highlight some of the boundary crossing that we have both had to do as we develop new understandings of self-study together. Finally, I wish to highlight the role of language as a mediator in any academic work. My thinking is mostly done in French through French primary sources, and so a significant challenge from self-study to me has been to understand ideas framed in English, which are often both linguistically and conceptually unfamiliar. I am indeed grateful to my co-author and critical friend for talking through these concepts in French and in English to help me mediate these challenges. We have provided all of the English versions of citations from French sources. Given the questions about inclusion and equity that have been raised via self-study methodology, I hope that this chapter about challenges can be useful for those considering issues around linguistic inclusion, plurality, and self-study. Setting the scene. A newcomer to La Didactique. Sean. In Bullock, I use the metaphor of an accidental language teacher-educator to highlight my long-time, if tacit, engagement in language education, teaching, and learning. After a few years as a secondary school physics teacher, I took on a unique role in which I was a language and literacy teacher for a group of schools in a large Canadian school board. Doing so afforded me the opportunity to work with elementary and secondary colleagues across all subjects and provided two years of professional engagement with educational research under the broad umbrella of literacy education. I retained many of these ideas when I transitioned into full-time doctoral studies and an academic career, most clearly in a paper in which I explored what one might do with ideas around science literacy in teacher education. With hindsight, I realized that I have never had a theoretical framework to interrogate my understanding of language education, and in particular to separate discussions around literacy and discussions about language acquisition, teaching, and learning. Among other experiences, I took an extended amount of French growing up in Ontario, was required to pass a translation exam as part of my MA in history, and routinely code-switched between languages and terminology while teaching various martial arts. Despite these experiences, it was not until conversations with Cecile that I realized that I was a language educator, despite my unwillingness to identify as such. As a result of our collaborative self-study and critical friendship, I have spent a considerable amount of time learning about La Didactique from conversations with Cecile, from reading relevant literature, and from attending and presenting at conferences and academic events in France. Thus, our critical friendship, from my perspective, offers opportunities for both of us to learn from and with each other's immersion in different academic worlds. My role in this chapter has been to be a different kind of critical perspective to Cecile. Although Cecile has used La Didactique as a starting off point from which to understand and interpret self-study literature, I have engaged in the opposite directions. These conversations, mediated between scholarship and two languages, have been enormously useful for me as a self-study insider and a novice outsider to La Didactique. Distance, professionalism, 
vulnerability, and self in research. In this section of the chapter, we explore the challenges and tensions associated with the subjectivity of self-study research, and, in particular, how these challenges and tensions manifest for someone who is both new to the methodology and familiar with other conceptualizations of reflexive research. Specifically, we explore three challenges from self-study methodology to those who engage in reflexively oriented research by using vignettes authored by Cecile, who is relatively new to self-study, but who is also an experienced qualitative researcher formed by experiences in the French Academy. To begin, we argue that our personal and professional stories are never far from the postures that we deploy when conducting our research. Our experiences as teachers and teacher educators, as well as our life stories, nourish our professional identities. In self-study, researchers operate from and embrace the premise of their own subjectivity and, quote, present evidence of meaning and relationships among phenomenon from the authority of their own experience, end quote. Yet, assuming the implication of their subjectivity in their research, their posture, and their practice, sometimes offers resistance and tensions. One early source of tension for me emerged during my participation at the Castle Conference of 2018. I feel like a fish out of its aquarium. Sean has been so reassuring and patient, even when I resisted his suggestions for how we might present in a manner appropriate to this conference. Yet, I am so uncomfortable. I am not sure I will be able to present our work the way he would like us to do. It's too personal. This is not how I'm used to talk about research in a conference. I don't want to expose my inner thoughts. I don't want to appear unprofessional. It reminds me of this first day at Simon Fraser University with all the faculty associate teachers in our teacher education program. How uneasy I felt when I was asked to introduce myself. I spoke about my qualifications, about my work with teachers, and what I would like to do with student teachers. They all listened, and then somebody asked me, Yes, but who are you, Cecile? The frustration I felt with both occasions at which I was asked to, in my view, be personally vulnerable, highlights French scholars frequently discuss the difference between le soi, the self, and le récit de soi, the story of the self, often underlying the complexities of working with both simultaneously. For example, Altette, Desjardins, Etienne, Pequet, and Perrineau draw attention to the fact that tensions transpire when engaging in problematizing oneself into one's practice. Such tensions have to be taken seriously, as they may hinder the benefits of conducting self-study and research. To answer the question, who am I, is tantamount to being interested in the way we define ourselves and in the representations that we construct in our relationship with others. As Butler points out, it is in the relationship with others, in their injunction, that we are led to sketch the contours of our identity. Butler argues, in part, that one accounts for oneself when one is asked that constructing an I is, in part, a reconstruction of past actions. Yet, Self-study does not solely depend on the ability to reconstruct an experience. It has much in common with Schoen's concept of the action present, that time period in which one is able to affect one's actions. Put another way, self-study methodology constitutes the prerequisite condition as a means of assuming responsibility for one's actions and making sense of one's actions. Lebowski framed this as the methodological requirement of being self-initiated and self-focused. Such a focus requires le soi, the self and the récit de soi, the story of the self, to interact in ways that were initially uncomfortable for Cecile. The tension Cecile experienced at the Castle Conference demonstrates that, even though she had embraced self-study methodology and theory, mediated via reading relevant literature and writing her first self-study paper, she still had to enact it in her practice as scholar. As Lebowski argued, she had to make the results of her self-study public. What is often not clear from self-study literature, however, is that the ways in which one is expected to make the results of practice public go beyond traditional mode of academic knowledge dissemination. A self-study presentation at a self-study conference is a singular experience, particularly if one is used to claiming a degree of distance from one's research, 
implicitly or explicitly. Thus, Cecile struggled with the idea of appearing inadequate and vulnerable as a researcher publicly. The transition from the personal to the professional sphere was experienced with discomfort. Cecile was faced with a paradoxical situation. On the one hand, she adopted the multifaceted process of self-study in private. On the other hand, she resisted enacting this singular experience of the self in public. For Cecile, the challenge was to reflect on her epistemological postures and to reconsider her role, not only as a researcher, but as a witness of her own experience. This reconfiguration leads to engaging with her experience instead of thinking about it. In her exploration of the meaning that sociolinguists, Cecile's educational background, make of their relationship to their field of research and their research project, Bretonnier emphasizes that engaging with one's field of research, quote, should not be reduced to an artificial causal exercise that makes direct causal links between the thematic choices of research and socio-identities and experiential traits of researchers, end quote. Put another way, Cecile felt as though she was being put in a position to present her self-study work in a way that precisely opposed the foundations of her academic training. She had to re-examine her ways of knowing by revisiting the epistemic, affective, and social dimensions that were at stake in her identity as a scholar. Fundamental to this process was the question of distancing, that is, the implication of researchers within their inquiry. Distance. How close is the researcher to their research? At the outset of my self-study work, I sought to give meaning to my practice by problematizing my narrative of teacher-educator and research. Doing so suggested that I articulate the tensions that arise in conducting self-study, and that I use these tensions as jumping-off points as a place of meaningful expressions of self. By doing so, however, I found that professional habitus as a scholar and some of their foundations were called into question. One of these foundations finds its source in my scholarly background in sociolinguistics. The distancing or implication of the researcher from their research field is a quarrel that is still discussed in social sciences in general, in sociolinguistics in particular, and perhaps in francophone sociolinguistics most particularly. It is not an exaggeration to suggest that questions of distance are those most likely to provoke distrust and tension in my journey as a self-study scholar, a fact made all the more relevant by the intensity with which self-study scholars examine the construction of self in relation to identity and practice. The basic questions of the objective-slash-subjective distance of the researcher from their research object and its subsequent question of the implication or neutrality for the research bear the mark of certain conceptualizations of positivism. For many decades, a particular view of being objective was prevalent, and it claimed that we can read reality from our observations in relatively unproblematic and disinterested ways. Labov, considered one of the first sociolinguists, referred to the observer's paradox when discussing the effects of the researcher's involvement in his-her research design. As Bretonnier argued, quote, For the sake of asserting scientific rigor, the figure of the researcher still appeared as a neutral figure, which made it possible to conceal the question of her own representations on their so-called object of research. At the time a delicate or even taboo question, it would have required researchers to think differently about the then-untenable paradox of the articulations between objectivity and subjectivity. End quote. We are all likely familiar with the development of the qualitative paradigm drawing from the phenomenological perspective. Researchers have reclaimed more and more their social individuality, yet the fact remains, as Castellotti points out, that research and a researcher, which would reflect on its action, its effects, and the changes that it produces into practice, is, quote, sometimes still either little recognized or even badly perceived or valued, end quote. As a result, quote, there is the permanence of an epistemology that considers researchers as being apart, free of psychosocial and emotional enrollment. End quote. It is clear that sociolinguistics frameworks in which Cecile has operated during her career still carry a certain amount of baggage regarding the distance between the researcher and the research. 
Her primary framework, La Didactique du Pluralinguisme, sets up French didactics that are very different from English or German conceptualizations of didactics as a relational way of understanding how to apply educational theories to problems of practice understood from plurilingual perspectives. Through our self-study work, we have realized that the operating frameworks of La Didactique still conceptualize the researcher as an actor on the research, reflexive though they may be, and thus someone with a certain amount of distance. It is small wonder, then, that Cecile encounters some questions when she came to self-study, which blurs lines and concepts of distance even further. Self-study, we have come to realize, is more than reflexive practice. As Laughrin stated, a clear definition and set of methods for self-study methodology have not emerged, but it is clear to us that one of the methodology's defining features is the challenges it poses to distance, and perhaps this is part of the underpinnings of some of the critiques it has received from the research literature. Questioning Conceptualizations of Professional Ethics, a Professional Ethos. In Sabatier and Bullock, we shared a vignette of Cecile's early experiences as a teacher educator in Canada that has turned out to be a more significant challenge than originally anticipated. Quote, early in her career at the university, Cecile was asked to introduce herself to a group of teacher candidates. She responded by introducing her professional qualifications and the frameworks in which she worked, as is customary in France. A seconded teacher working within the teacher education program somewhat dismissively, stated in response, Yes, but who are you? Cecile was unused to being asked to define her identity to teacher candidates in this way. There was clearly an accepted way to talk about who one is as a teacher, and it did not match her initial expectations. To be asked a question of, who are you, in that fashion, implied that her response was somehow lacking in substance, and that she had thus failed to cross the border from education professor from abroad to teacher educator at Simon Fraser University, SFU, end quote. It is clear that there is a cultural dimension to how the concept of a professional is constructed. Such dimensions are also at play in how we consider the concept of a teacher and a teacher educator. The French term for teacher educator, formateur de enseignant, implies a particular engagement with and responsibilities for how new teachers come to be. The excerpt above reveals that the culture of teacher education at Cecile's workplace found her way of presenting herself lacking. Perhaps Cecile was particularly attuned to the implications of these sorts of questions because, as a language educator, she recognizes that one of the first things one teaches students of a new language is how to present themselves. One's name, where they come from, and some other basic personal details are the early features of almost any course of instruction. With some further distance from this original incident, Cecile is also prepared to hypothesize that part of the reason she was questioned in this particular way was a result of a difference in the professional ethos of local school teachers and the French Academy. Guibert investigated the reasons for which secondary school French teachers tend to resist engaging in reflexive practice. He argues that French school teachers tend to develop social representations of the teaching profession that are not very conducive to the construction of knowledge from situated and inactive practice. Instead, they tend to develop representations that are closely adapted to the concept of compétence, a term that might best translate as an action one is able to take based on professional knowledge. Such representations result in the construction of professional identities, the relationship with oneself, and the way in which the relationship to knowledge develops over a career. For Guibert, these representations are culturally rooted in the professional ethos teachers and researchers, we add, develop about their role as models for others. Such professional representations both draw upon and make a mark upon individual and collective dimensions of professional identity. It is thus relatively clear both why Cecile had the reaction that she did and why her colleagues likely thought very little about the potential effects of the exchange. Returning to a previous example of Cecile's experiences of the Castle Conference, which provoked a profound questioning of her research stance, 
we can see that self-study of teaching and teacher education practices offers methodological hope for the power of question conceptions about what it means to be a teacher and a teacher educator, including but not limited to the questioning of different professional ethos. Although Cecile already claimed subjective approach in her previous body of research, she would now argue that self-study methodology requires her to adopt an in-situ professional stance of a researcher and a realization that she is in the research and not simply doing research on her practice. In French, we would say this is a difference between entre en recherche and faire de la recherche. Pinagar and Hamilton called attention to the ontological stance that self-study research requires, and we see the tension that Cecile articulated between differing conceptions of the professional ethos as crucial to fulfilling said ontological commitment. We also highlight, however, that these two stances are not incompatible, and it is not just self-studies researchers who articulate the compatibility between these stances. Wenzel considers that being in research leads to another way of thinking about practice, of questioning it, and also of understanding and interpreting it. Adopting such a research stance is not easy or simple. It uncovers a final tension that we refer to as vulnerability as an action. Vulnerability as an action. It is one thing to feel vulnerable as a researcher. We expect that most researchers have this feeling across disciplines. We naturally feel vulnerable when sharing new ideas, when arguing against established frameworks, or when venturing into a field for the first time. We would argue that this sense of vulnerability tends to be compounded for self-study researchers, as the object of our study is not particles, literature, or social systems. Our research is on ourselves in relation to identity and to our practice. Self-study methodology requires and invites a public scrutiny on who we are and how we teach future teachers. In doing so, self-study requires us to be vulnerable through our own actions as researchers and as teacher educators. Cecile struggled with accepting the required vulnerability as a researcher in self-study. In fact, she resisted it in many ways, at times feeling she was in conflict with herself, with her relation to scientific knowledge, with her practice as scholar, and with her relation to others, researchers, and systems of thought. Cecile's malaise and feelings of resistance disappeared from the moment she situated herself in the process of being in research. This unique stance promotes meeting with oneself in an availability of self which in turn allows a disposition of mind conducive to listening, to dialogue, and to what Alan Day and Alan Day call, quote, finding power in practice, end quote. When Cecile agreed to turn her vulnerability into inaction, she realized that this vulnerability could be a rudder in the often turbulent waters of navigating a new system of thinking and research. Schoen spoke of the swampy lowlands of practice, and indeed, self-study owes a considerable intellectual debt to Schoen's way of conceptualizing knowledge of practice. For example, he reconceptualized professional knowledge as knowing an action, and it is here that we suggest that a part of self-study methodology is vulnerability in action. It is difficult for us to imagine a sense of self-study that does include vulnerability. Lebowski, for example, argues that we make the results of our self-studies open to public scrutiny. Thus, the vulnerability required by self-study methodology is no longer an impediment, but a mechanism for action. One can again find warrant for this approach in the extant literature as well as within the self-study literature. Roger, Roulin, and Clough insist on the importance of professional controversies, loosely defined as an argumentative, structured, and continuous discussion on a given subject. Crucially, one is also required to engage in these experiences with professionals, researchers, or teachers as mechanisms for adapting and developing practices. Taken in this way, vulnerability is no longer the result of an inadequate relationship with knowledge, but, on the contrary, is an internalization of an embodied research process which takes into account the fact that each scholar evolves in their own environment, with their own rules, in their own world. It is the premise of the researcher's motivation to act, or inaction, in self-study. 
It is from the awareness of the problematic situation that a process of clarification of conflicting values begins, including during the dialogue with critical friends. Such a process allows a step back necessary to adopt a sufficient emotional distance to mobilize the theoretical and conceptual framework which will help us to understand our practice and to transform it. In other words, vulnerability as an action paradoxically allows Cecile to enter into a process of questioning her practice and her research stance. Embracing her vulnerable self in self-study amounts for Cecile to having a singular experience of herself, with herself, and by herself. Although discomfort and in search for equilibrium, Cecile's vulnerability neither halts nor restricts the meaning of her experience and the construction of knowledge that flows from it. In this sense, Cecile's vulnerability is an experience that is both individual and social. According to Molinier, the self, quote, never appears as a fixed point, eternally defined, but as the middle point of the never-ending gravitational pull of individual experience, end quote. A reflexive approach such as self-study methodology is also, in itself, a social experience because it calls for, quote, an accounting of all the suffering and the difficulties that accompany the current process of decomposition and recomposition, end quote, of professional identities. Vulnerability as an action, then, is a necessary part of self-study methodology that requires an understanding of the effects in individual experiences and collective experiences as teachers, teacher educators, and researchers. Such understanding allows for a process of construction and reconstruction of these professional identities through self-studied methodology and a particular kind of openness that Cecile needed to realize in her journey. It is a process full of challenges to and from self-study and to and from the researchers, and it is to these challenges that we now turn. Self-study challenge, une posture didactique, du dedans et implaqué. So far, we have discussed challenges to and from self-study research by considering moments in Cecile's journey as a newcomer to the field, having been formed as a researcher and teacher educator in a language and country without a tradition of self-study, as conceived within self-study of teaching and teacher education practices methodology. We label these challenges as the challenge of distance, professional ethos, and vulnerability as an action, and, in part, concluded that said challenges required a mindset of being in the research. A conclusion supported by Pinnegar and Hamilton's concern about privileging ontology over epistemology in self-study. In this section of the chapter, we examine the additional challenges that come from French didactiques towards self-study. In many ways, said challenges come from Cecile's initial mindset and the reflexive turn required by self-study, even for an experienced researcher familiar with subjective approaches to research and education. Thus, while the previous section articulated challenges from self-study to Cecile's framework as a researcher, and teacher educator. This section explores the challenges to self-study that come from Cecile's previous experiences as a researcher within French didactics. Our key organizing framework comes from comments Cecile made in her research journal after about a year of working with the methodology. Isn't self-study une didactique impliquée, a didactic stance, whose posture is anchored from within, une posture du dedans, to access the significations of teaching and learning and explicitly give meaning to professional knowledge? and problematize teachers' selves in their practice in order to reframe their beliefs in the act of teaching, motivated in part by work from Bullock and Madigan-Piercy, we wish to add to conversations from within the self-study literature by using frameworks and literature not typically employed by self-study researchers. Here again, we aim to navigate challenges to and from self-study by considering our roles as insiders and outsiders to various literatures and modes of thought. We note that self-study literature tends to argue for a certain coherence about self-study approaches if not a correct way, to do self-study. We also note that external critiques of self-study may see this assertion as problematic. 
We aim to further complicate the discussions by challenging what it means to be in self-study research by using ideas from Cecile's formational scholarship. The three challenges to self-study that we explore here are une posture didactique, une posture du dédain, and une posture impliquée, roughly translated as didactic stance from within oneself that requires a self-conscious approach to reflexive research. Each challenge complicates further what we see as a fundamental challenge posed by self-study, that of being in the research as a teacher-educator and a researcher. A didactic stance, une posture didactique. In a chapter discussing the ethical considerations of self-study, we already underlined the necessity of adopting a didactic stance as understood by the francophone conceptualization of la didactique, rather than a pedagogic one, to engage in self-study methodology. By didactic stance, we mean the creation of a meaningful learning space which takes interest in acquiring knowledge. In doing so, the didactic perspective cannot be reduced to a simple matter of pedagogy. We also acknowledge the epistemological baggage around the word didactic in English, particularly given that the word looks quite similar to the French didactique and the German didactique, despite the fact that the three concepts are conceptualized quite differently in each of the three languages and associated scholarly traditions. Given that the vast majority of scholarship and self-study of teaching and teaching practices methodology has been written in English, we acknowledge that the idea of a didactic stance might seem initially uncomfortable for certain readers. We also direct readers to Laughrin's critique of the often casual use of the term pedagogy as a synonym for teaching strategy, without reference to the different philosophies and conceptual underpinnings of the term. Vergniaud argues that la didactique is not to be set in opposition to pedagogy. It tends to concern itself more with the challenges of analyzing the content of the activities involved in learning, particularly from a social and cognitive perspective. For cost, quote, la didactique operates at a meta level in relation to pedagogy and what happens in class, and more generally, in activities aimed at learning, end quote. It is thus a way of thinking about teaching and learning, grounded in reflexive approaches, situated in practice, and aimed at improving learning. We see immediate parallels with Lebowski's requirements that self-study of teaching and teacher education methodology be self-initiated and focused, improvement-aimed, and interactive while using multiple, primarily qualitative methods and seeking exemplar-based validation. The term didactic, la didactique, directly refers to the theoretical and conceptual framework that is adopted by Cecile when she documents, questions, analyzes, and interprets her teaching and learning practice. La didactique du plurilinguisme is a conceptual offspring of la didactique des langues et des cultures, languages and cultures, itself an offspring of a larger discipline, la didactique générale, that aims to articulate theories of teaching and learning within situated professional practice and the social context they are embedded in. For scholars in la didactique du plurilinguisme, teaching and learning are complex matters that are situated in multiple social contexts, like self-study methodology, La didactique makes explicit the knowledge inherent to teaching and what Mumby and Russell refer to as the authority of experience, which arose from a concern articulated in the following way. Quote, if shown as correct that there is a knowledge in action that cannot be fully expressed in propositions, and that learning from experience has its own epistemology, then our concern is that learning from experience is never clearly contrasted with learning that can be expressed and conveyed in propositions. End quote. Multiple self-study scholars have referred to the authority of experience as a foundational element of knowledge gained from the self-study of teaching and teacher education. Similarly, la didactique and its various conceptual progenies arose from concerns about the nature of knowledge gained from the experiences of language educators, gained in the crucibles of changes to immigration patterns in France in the late 1960s. 
La Didactique du Plurilinguisme indeed arose from the interrogations of researchers in La Didactique des Langues et des Cultures in the 1980s about the relationships between the teaching of mother tongue and foreign languages between them. La Didactique du Plurilinguisme appears as an attempt which aims, quote, to constitute a body of possible responses to the needs of an educational actions and approaches to teaching aimed at a majority or partially multilingual public, end quote. Similarly, Cost argued that researchers and teacher educators need to risk asking themselves and others how la didactique is meant to aid in the, quote, development of capacities to act in and with several languages, end quote. Like self-study, la didactique requires a certain practical orientation to improving practice. The transition from French didactics focused on languages and cultures to Cecile's particular areas of experience, those focused on plurilingualism, or of linguistic plurality, was characterized by a close and comprehensive examination of the role of the researcher in didactics. More specifically, researchers began to question how individual journeys, professional progress, and the construction of knowledge as social action are intertwined. Moreover, French didacticians began considering how between reflections on and interrogations of their scholarship might be operationalized in order to attain educational changes in pluralistic societies. Thus, like self-study, French didactics are anchored in a socio-constructivist perspective in which, quote, research is always a work of interpretation and scholars are always in the thick of the research process rather than distance from it, end quote. A stance from within, une posture de dedans. The second challenge we pose to self-study is what we refer to as a stance from within. While the first challenge, a didactic stance, might be a relatively straightforward transition to and from self-study, Adopting a stance within has a certain degree of unfamiliarity for newcomers to self-study methodology. The expression calls attention to the various notions at the core of self-study methodology, reflexivity and reflective practice. It is not difficult to find any number of references to either term in English language scholarship. It is far more challenging to find coherent approaches to either term. Like many popular ideas in educational research, one risks a shallow consensus in which it is far too easy to assume that we are using words in particular ways. As Cousin notes, for example, quote, sometimes reflexivity is treated as a synonym for reflective practice, with the result that its distinctive attention to positionality and knowledge construction is neglected or simplified, end quote. Cousin's affirmation immediately questions the language used to discuss how to qualify our inquiry stance. Is it about reflective, reflect, practice, or reflexive, analyze, inquiry? And how are those terms understood, particularly across theoretical frameworks, languages, and contexts? One person's idea of reflexivity could be another person's concept of reflection, which in turn might be what yet another person calls critical reflection. Such confusion, we argue, seems particularly likely when one conducts self-study across multiple languages. This set of challenges helps to address explicitly the idea of positionality in self-study and how positionality, or distance, may generate understandings and insights on our practice and context. Engaging in self-study should not be limited to or reduced to a mere confessional account of the limitations of one's perspective on teaching and learning and practice. If the first steps require stopping and thinking about one's practice to problematize it, what's shown called problem framing, the second steps require the researcher to adopt an analytical approach that considers, quote, the genesis, the procedures, and the consequences of our actions, end quote. In doing so, the researcher operating from perspectives offered by French didactics and self-study takes on a stance from within, quote, demanding a reflexivity of the actor who analyzes their actions from the inside, end quote, and thus problematizes that assumptions that make their professional knowledge possible. From this perspective, a posture from within allows a reflexive practice with external aim. But La Didactique offers caution as well. 
Perrineau argued that all forms of reflection are not reflexive. Furthermore, even if we are all capable of reflection, we are not always in a reflexive disposition. Such a disposition is a necessary condition for change. It is a form of lucidity whose components are intellectual, emotional, relational, institutional, and in relation with identities. As Perrineau notes, quote, The reflexive posture is only relevant for those who live a certain tension between their ambitions and what they manage to do. It takes a certain amount of disappointment, frustration, and therefore failure for thought to take hold of the problem, end quote. Barry offered tensions as a framework for analyzing her practices as a science teacher educator. Although there is considerable merit in using her seven tensions as tools for understanding one's own practice, we would argue that the heuristic of tensions itself is of potentially far more value. The challenge of developing a stance from within to self-study, offered by La Didactique, offers another set of tensions in addition to those articulated within the self-study literature. This challenge reminds us that the turn to self advocated by self-study is not self-evident. A self-conscious stance. Une posture impliquée. The final challenge to self-study comes from the meta-level that Cost argued was essential to adopting a framework of la didactique. Doing so implies that one must adopt a self-conscious stance, which we define as an explicit acknowledgement and definition of just what it means to be in the research and to examine one's own practice. Writing from outside of self-study methodology, but within broader Anglophone traditions of reflexive practice, Cousin provided a helpful articulation. Quote, the methodological debate in practitioner research has shifted from how to minimize subjectivity to that of thinking more about how to bring oneself into the research process self-consciously. This involves an acknowledgement that the self is the research tool in the inquiry rather than a threat to its objectivity. End quote. Writing several decades before, Touraine warned that, quote, it is difficult to separate the individual from their social situation. The actor is a reflexive mode of the construction of social experience and a founding principle of the analysis of manifestations of individual and collective life, end quote. Taking the implications of this claim seriously calls for what Francophone scholar Tardif referred to as the return of the actor in his examination of the research paradigm that has emerged since Schoen's work. Within the setting of self-study, meeting-making is a social activity even when we are doing it on our own. The scholarly communities associated with self-study call to mobilize the notion of social actor, Quote, understood as a principle of intelligibility of the social, end quote. The challenges faced by Cecile led her to assert and mobilize the dispositions, motivations, meanings, and ways of thinking that allow her to act in her given situation. She was, in other words, forced to re-examine her role as a social actor. Cecile appears in her self-study research thus as a social actor who seeks to understand her social activity, teaching and learning, for example. This social activity implies room for maneuver, choices, and decisions on the part of the actor involved in contingent social situations. Cecile's choices and positionings are co-constructed in an articulation between the different fragments of her history and all that have contributed to it. They allow her to assert, drawing on her theoretical background, la didactique de plurilinguisme and sociolinguistics, a dialectical link between pre-constructed material, her knowledge base derived from her educational background, and elements under construction, her reflection on her action, which are subject to questioning when conducting self-study. Her self-conscious stance is characterized by an adaptation and a constant negotiation of the forms of intervention of the researcher according to what is sought to be understood. Lastly, Cecile's involved positionality results in a critique of established categories and ideologies that imprisoned her ways of thinking and her social practice as an individual, as a teacher, as a teacher educator, and as a self-study scholar. Her self-conscious turn requires her to consider the ways in which research and self-study is a force of contestation in the face of established power. For Touraine, quote, the subject constitutes a social and political actor 
who moves in a social space to be understood as a field of conflicts, negotiations, and mediation between rationalization and subjectivation, which constitute the two aspects that are both opposite and complementary to modernity. Self study scholars such as Barry and Forgaz call for a new relationship with knowledge, identities, and power. One way of responding to that call is to consider how self study methodology demands a self conscious stance. Power and language in society. In this chapter, we have interrogated Cecile's experiences as an experienced Francophone scholar who has recently begun engaging in self study methodologies. We have also used Sean's experiences within self study as a way to analyze Cecile's transition into the field while simultaneously considering his relative newcomer status to la didactique, Cecile's field of expertise. In doing so, we have articulated three challenges from self-study methodology to Cecile's work as a scholar. The challenges of distance, professionalism, and vulnerability. Each cause moments of tension and opportunities for reframing. We have also articulated three challenges to self-study methodology offered by Cecile's background in French didactics and sociolinguistics, a didactic stance, a stance from within, and a self-conscious research stance. In articulating the latter, we might reasonably ask self-study researchers for clarifications around what it means to adopt stances familiar to both self-study and French didactics, particularly when warrants come from different traditions. We wish to conclude our chapter with an exploration of two perspectives that arise from the six aforementioned challenges to and from self-study. The first new perspective explores what Kanuka and Park Rogers name the recognition of power in self-study research. The second perspective explores the role of languages in conducting self-study as Cousin declares that, quote, we have to use the social tool of language to make knowledge claims, and this requires us to think about the implications of this process, end quote. Power in self-study. In Cecile's research journal, we find some evidence of her early explorations of power within self-study, largely due to the choices she makes as a teacher educator and as a researcher. Quote, Self-study is, in other words, a political inquiry stance. As such, power is at stake between myself, the students I'm interacting with in my classes, my colleagues, but also with any institution that imposes on me what I need to teach and sometimes how I need to teach. Yet, as a self-study scholar, I have to be critical of the social ideologies that are circulating, which means I also need to be critical of how I represent reality. Which words? Which languages? Languages are far from being neutral. When I use French, it is generative of a way of seeing and talking about something that might be different from when I use my other language, English. Thinking about the words I use, about when I code switch from one language to the other, is also part of being reflexive, isn't it? End quote. Language plays a significant role here because Cecile has had the experience of being in the dominant majority culture in France, doing research with minority language populations in French urban environments, and also being in a minority Francophone context, conducting research within minority language populations in mostly English-speaking urban environments. Self-study is a useful way of uncovering Cecile's logics of actions and motivations while reflecting on her struggles in teaching and learning contexts when doing self-study leads to, quote, the potential to critique the rather narrow and instrumentalist view of teacher education practice and scholarship furthered by policies in many countries, end quote. In doing so, this critical approach, as soon as it starts, uncovers the inextricable relations that link Cecile's own knowledge and ways of thinking and the social ideologies about learning and teaching, about identities, and about the social relations of domination. The need to better explore these ideologies and reflect on the connection between the reflective practitioner, be it a teacher, a teacher educator, and or a scholar, and the sociopolitical issues related to education is conducive of power structures that crisscross self-study, whether we like it or not. Kunsa and Park Rogers' account, though attending to the invisibility of power in self-study, resulted in the call for, quote, more attention to be given to the ways in which power shades the ethics 
of engaging in collaborative self-study research, end quote. Languages and Self-Study Research As a basis for knowing and a space for developing professional knowledge about teaching teachers, self-study methodology uses language as a heuristics for meaning-making and interpretation. When Cecile writes about her experiences in one of the two languages that are a part of her linguistic repertoire, or when she mixes the two idioms, she sets in motion a series of linguistic and cultural mediations that give meaning to her subjectivity and that deserve to be interpreted in order to identify her logics of actions as teacher, teacher educator, and researcher, and to highlight the identity foundations that underlie her activity. It is thus necessary to align her subjective dimension with a methodological device, a sociolinguistic, cultural, and critical discourse analysis, that allows to study the words that give meaning to her subjectivity, her history, and her experiences. Cousin mentioned that, quote, once we name something, we have created a cultural layer to it. We have assigned it to a signifier, end quote. The question of languages in research and scientific writing brings out a resolutely new sociolinguistic perspective in doing self-study. It focuses on the notion of mediation that Aiden defines as being, quote, at the foundation of our shared understanding, end quote. Mediation underlies all the situations and processes of linguistic and cultural context, facilitating, or not, the circulation of information, interpersonal relationships, and social integration. It refers to any intervention that aims to reduce the tensions between two, or even more than two, poles that are in tension with each other. When conducting self-study research in two languages, Cecile engages in a concatenation of linguistic, cultural, and cognitive mediations that make content and context intelligible, alternating between the use of French and English, or otherwise interacting in multi- or plurilingual mode within the same turn of phrase, highlights that linguistic plurality needs to be more investigated in conducting self-study research. The circulation of ideas, concepts, and notions from one framework to another, from one language to others, lies in the ways in which these ideas, concepts, and notions are transformed by the different linguistic and intellectual traditions. Exploring the ways in which they shape our understandings and insights of our practice will help us to gain a deeper understanding of changing research contexts and take into account other norms and modes of thinking. McDonough and Brandenburg address this issue by urging self-study researchers to, quote, engage with ethical issues in and across cultures, end quote. Perplexing politics, framing challenges to and from self-study. Self-study methodology is challenging as a research approach because it examines the extent to which one is living out one's values. It requires one to discuss and re-examine them in a way that values can evolve in response to examined practice. By nature, self-study calls for a variety of theories and multiple qualitative methods. As Samaras and Fries note, quote, self-study researchers come from various theoretical orientations and conceptually frame their studies accordingly. By doing so, quote, there is no one way or correct way of doing self-study. Rather, how a self-study might be done depends on what is sought to be better understood, end quote. Throughout both our work together and in the writing of this chapter, in which we have deliberately crossed borders of language and academic cultures, we have explored perspectives offered by both power and language in an effort to better understand the perplexing politics of self-study methodology. We recognize that there are any number of ways in which one might frame challenges to and from self-study. Bullock and Madigan Piercy examined challenges raised from within self-study literature and those raised in the extant literature, concluding in part that there was perhaps not as great a difference in concerns as one might originally think. In examining challenges to and from the self-study, we argue that one must always begin with an acknowledgement of what Siegel called the reading positions associated with their endeavor. For example, we might examine questions such as, what categories of research and associated assumptions are we adopting and discussing in our work as self-study scholars? What frameworks, paradigms, and discourses shape our foundational ideas as teacher educators and as researchers? 
What are the intellectual and social histories of these ideas? How do our assumptions frame our understanding and insight about teaching, learning, and our identities? These questions bring to mind Bolo and Pinagar's discussion of, quote, the four perplexing clusters of problems for self-study, end quote, which are the problems of definition, ontology, form, and scholarship. We have touched on each of these throughout this chapter via an examination of a research tradition, la dadatite, that has not been widely explored within most Anglophone scholarship, although it shares many of the goals of self-study methodology. In this chapter, we have taken the perspectives of a researcher at once new and experienced to highlight the perplexing politics of challenging self-study. We, as a research community, naturally expect self-study of teaching and teacher education to challenge newcomers. But to what extent do new ideas from other research traditions continue to permeate the corpus of self-study literature? In the years that come, we hope that both novice researchers and experienced researchers from other methodological traditions continue to contribute to self-study methodology. In particular, we challenge both newcomers and the existing community to explore, from first principles, the epistemological, ontological, and axiological assumptions they have both about self-study methodology and about other methods and methodologies they seek to combine, and axiological assumptions they have about self-study methodology and about other methods and methodologies they seek to combine within a self-study framework. If self-study methodology is a hybrid methodology, as Bolo and Pinagar suggested, then how do researchers from other methodological traditions navigate this hybridity in their own work? Additionally, we strongly encourage researchers who conduct self-study research in languages other than English to make explicit the particular challenges and opportunities that multiple languages offer to self-study. We hope to read more cross-cultural and cross-linguistic self-study research, written in multiple languages and for multiple academies. For those familiar with existing traditions of self-studying in English, this will require a willingness to work through the history of the development of the field over the past 30 years with fresh pairs of eyes. For those new to self-study, this will require a willingness to help self-study researchers understand the ways in which other research traditions have grappled with similar ideas, particularly in other languages. In both cases, it is important to resist the temptation to automatically assume that we are either talking about the same issues using different words or approaching ideas in diametrically opposed ways. We hope that this chapter has provided one illuminating possibility, a consideration of the ways in which self-study both challenges and can be challenged.